This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Need great health care coverage with an affordable price tag? Let Farm Bureau Health Plans coach you through it. They've been protecting Tennesseans for 75 years. Special guest, Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer since 2017. Welcome. Thanks so much. Tell me if I have this wrong. Dr. Sills is a neurosurgeon and sports physician a part of Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he serves as professor of neurological surgery, orthopedic surgery and rehabilitation, and founder and co-director of Vanderbilt Sports Concussion Center. I will plead guilty to all those titles. That's right. That's great. <laughs> You're the busiest man in show business. Nah, I don't know about that, but thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to sit down and chat. All right, so you're in this busy time right now. We're all about to crank up later in July you are already running. I want to ask you about what's being done with the league and diversity towards diversifying sports medicine because it's a very exciting program that you have this fall, and it involves Meharry here in Nashville. Tell us about that, Dr. Sills. Yeah, it really does, Mike, and it's something that we've made a priority. So diversity and inclusivity across the league is a value in, in all of our operations, but when we specifically look at it in sports medicine, we know we've got a lot of work to do. And our sports medicine staffs are not as diverse as we'd like them to be, whether we're talking about physicians, athletic trainers, or others. So we've worked together with the NFL Physician Society, with the Professional Football Athletic Trainer Society, and say, what can we do to help address this? And we're really focusing on what we call the pipeline, which is the people who are coming in training. How can we get more diverse candidates into that pipeline and connect them with the opportunities in professional sports. So the specific program that you referenced, we're very excited about. It's launching this fall with eight of our clubs, one of whom are the Titans. And what we've done is we've partnered with the four HBCU medical schools, one of which is here in Nashville, Meharry. And we've said we want to identify students who are in their third or fourth year of medical school who are interested in either going into orthopedic sports medicine or primary care sports medicine. And we'd like to take them and offer them a one-month rotation to come and embed themselves with the sports medicine program at NFL teams. Completely embedded. This means orthopedic surgery and athletic training, strength and conditioning and behavioral health and nutrition, all the parts that go into the modern care of an athlete. And the goal there is really twofold. One, to expose them to those careers and, and what that looks like and, and inspire them to pursue that. But secondly, to connect them with mentors. We all know how important mentorship is. And so having someone who's been through that journey can really help these students as they begin that process and, and hopefully help them navigate that. So each of those medical schools will be sending students, as I mentioned, to eight NFL teams. Each team will host two students this year, so 16 students total. We hope to expand this to all 32 clubs next year. But we're really excited about this as one way to start help addressing that pipeline and improve the diversity of the candidate pool who will be going into sports medicine for the future. And what an opportunity for the Titans to partner with Meharry, which is a very, very special place in and of itself. It absolutely is, and Meharry's been such a leader. I mean, for example, going back to COVID, you know, we couldn't get away, I guess, from talking about that completely, but Dr. James Hildreth, who's the president of Meharry, one of the absolute international leaders on COVID. He was so foundational in helping advise the league. He helped us a lot with our educational efforts and, and partnered on a lot of our communications. And so we've developed a great working relationship. And when we came back and said, you know, now we really want to see what can we do? What can the NFL do to help address this, this problem of diversity in sports medicine? He was very enthusiastic. And so Meharry's a, a great partner. 
this won't be the only program we're doing together. We've got a lot of other ideas about how we can inspire undergraduate students to go into these careers. We're also looking to work with HBCU sports medicine programs at the undergraduate level and share with them some of the things we're doing and learning in the NFL that we think can make things healthier for their athletes. So lots more work to be done, Mike, but I'm really excited to see that we're committed to this and that we're going to make this a priority going forward. What makes sense about so much of what the NFL has been doing recently in this space is for any profession, one of the ways that you're able to advance is if you know a guy. I mean, it doesn't. And that can be also know a know a girl, but to know somebody who you can pick up the phone and call, or they think, "Hey, this person would be a great candidate." It's right. about connections, That's and right. what you're talking about is just furthering that into the area of the medical field involving the NFL. It, it absolutely is the right way to think about it. And then, as I mentioned, that mentorship is so critical because you have so many different points at which you need advice and, and direction about how to position yourself to be the most effective candidate because these are really competitive positions. When you start talking about applying for a residency to become an orthopedic sports physician or a primary care sports physician, far more applicants than there are places. So how can we help people position themselves to be the most successful candidate? And then, as you said, once they finish that training, when someone's thinking about a job, hey, yeah, I know so-and-so. I'm going to reach out to them or, you know, you may should reach out to this person because I worked with them and they're a terrific person. It's all about broadening our vision, broadening our horizon, and getting outside of the small group that we might have seen in the past. And did I hear you say the majority of people who are going into the business of being athletic trainers in this day and time are female? Yes, there are more women going into athletic training than there are men, which we think is terrific and is a great step forward and real change from a few years back. But we still need to inspire more people, certainly people of color. We were interested in going into all of these fields and making kids aware that it's not just one career path. You know, back in the not too distant past, you know, sports medicine was an orthopedic surgeon and maybe an athletic trainer. And now sports medicine is so much more than that. There's so many parts of it. I mentioned before primary care sports medicine and rehab, physical therapy, strength and conditioning, equipment managers, field surface managers, behavioral health, nutrition. These are all things we never even thought about 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we want to inspire students and let them know there are a lot of ways. If you have a passion and an interest in sports and a passion and interest in science, there are a lot of ways you can combine those two together. Dr. Sills, we're trying to get ahead of the curve a little bit, talking about what is going to be a topic in training camp. And people are going to see the Guardian caps in training camps. And that's something they may have seen in high school and college, but they're going to see it for the pros Explain what a guardian cap is, please. So a guardian cap is a soft padded shell that adds on the top of the helmet. Think of it as something you slide over the top of the helmet, and it adds about a half inch of padding, foam-type padding, to the surface of the helmet. And the goal of that is simple. It, it absorbs force. So it's like putting, if you will, a, a bumper on your car and having that bumper crumple and, and absorb that force so that the force doesn't get transmitted into the car itself. So it's reducing the force that goes to the helmet and obviously secondarily to what's inside the helmet, which is what we really care dearly about, the brains of the athletes that are wearing those. And the league has been involved in some of the testing of this product? We have. So the product's been around for a few years, as you mentioned. But we and the league, have, together with the Players Association, have developed testing where we can reproduce the forces in a laboratory that go into producing injury on field. So we know how do players get hit, what direction, what speed, so forth, what part of the helmet that tends to produce injury. And so we can take that knowledge and we can test these types of products and say... 
here's how we can reduce that force. So we actually gave that information to the company making the Guardian caps. And what our players will be wearing this year is kind of what we call version 2.0. It's a pro version that was designed, Mike, based on that testing. So it's really a step forward with the product. And we tested it again in the lab using the same standards we do to test helmets. And this whole program is being driven by the outcome of that data, Mike. It was pretty clear that you had between a 10 and 15% force reduction anytime the helmet was hit if the cap was on the helmet. You can imagine then when two players are wearing it, if two players wearing the cap hit each other, now we've got an additive effect. We're 20% or more force reduction. So every time someone gets hit, there's a reduction in the force going through the helmet into the brain if you've got the cap on. All right, at one of the league meetings earlier this year, a resolution was passed. The offensive and defensive linemen are going to wear the guardian caps along with tight ends and linebackers for every preseason practice between the start of training camp's contact period and the second preseason game. Why just them, and what is the goal? So this is part of our overall effort around reducing head contact. I mean, that's the bottom line. Not just concussions, but actual head contact. And, and I've been very public, and the league's been very public to say that's our goal now, is we want to reduce avoidable head contact in the game. There's always a little bit of what I'd call unavoidable contact. Guys trip and hit the ground. You inadvertently collide with each other. By the way, that doesn't just happen in football. It happens in all sports. Sure. But in football, where are the areas where contact's occurring that we could reduce or eliminate? So when we started looking at that, we now can measure where that contact's occurring, Mike. We've got a couple of ways of measuring it. We've got some players who wear mouth guards that have sensors in them. So they've got a mouth guard in, and that has a sensor that measures how often they get hit, direction, speed, force, and all that. So we've got that data we've been gathering over the last couple years in a subset of players. Not all players wear that. We also have developed, through a partnership with Amazon Web Services, a, an artificial intelligence program that can look at a game, if you will, and measure every helmet impact. So the computer can look at that game and see every helmet impact and, and report on who got hit, where, when, and what the frequency was. When we looked at all that data, Mike, we discovered a couple things. One is linemen have the most helmet impacts, O-line, D-line. Tight ends and linebackers are not far behind. So when you talk about the resolution, you're talking about the positions on the field that have the highest rate of helmet contact. The second thing is you look at when in the season is that occurring. Obviously, it occurs some in games. doesn't really occur a lot in practice. I think the average fan may not realize there are very few contact practices during the season. Most of the contact practices are happening early in the preseason, what we call training camp, which is prior to the first preseason game. So essentially, this resolution looks at who's being hit the most, those positions you called out, and when is it happening, which is the early part of training camp. And the idea was to, to, to try to do all we can to reduce helmet contact during that time, not only just with the guardian cap, but making people aware of this, looking at the drills. We've spoken to every head coach in the league, and they're really thinking about how do we practice, what do we do, what are the situations, what can we do to, to, to reduce head contact? Because now that we can measure it, we can drive it down. It's just we have the technology now to be able to measure it. Okay, so I want to ask a couple of things about the guardian cap. Do you worry that it's hot? We've certainly heard that feedback. The company's worked. It's got some ventilation holes in it. But look, football in July is hot, period, right? I mean, oh, sure. I think our guys would tell you that. And, and I think that's one of the things that hopefully the company will continue to iterate on. Obviously, the cap doesn't have to be worn in times when you're not having contact. So there may be times that guys are in helmets that are not having contact. But contact practices, we think the, the benefit outweighs concerns about that. Now, these guys are, let's just say, fashion conscious. 
<laughs> Even the linemen are. No question. This is a different look. The Guardian cap is a very different look. Has anybody complained about that? Yes. You have gotten pushback. Yes. Okay. It's ugly. <laughs> just, just flat it's out. It's ugly. It's not fabulous. It's not. But I think there, there are two things about that. You know, one is we really want guys to understand this isn't about us trying to come down and be heavy-handed. In fact, the support for this being a mandate came from coaches. Yeah. Coaches are the ones that said, we really think this should be mandatory because we believe in this. We see the science. We see the data. We want to keep our guys safe. And we want to do all we can to have them not just today in this moment, but throughout the season and throughout a long career. So... Is there a fashion component? Sure, but there's also a, a, an availability component. Sure. And so we're not talking about this forever. You know, we're talking about it in this very defined period of time. The other thing I would tell you, Mike, is over 100 NCAA schools wear these now, including most of the big-name schools that you see playing in that national championship-type game. So players coming out of college have worn this. They're used to it. It's going to be new to some of our veterans, but it's not new to most players. That's a great point. And, and a guy like Mike Tomlin stepping out, I saw he was wearing one during practice for fun. But, he was. But the point he was making is this is a good thing. He was. And Coach Rabel, we've had conversations. Listen, he's another coach like Coach Tomlin that is very interested in these issues. He cares deeply about the health of his guys. And, and they look at the data. You know, they always say to us on the health and safety side, bring us the data. You know, we, we're happy to hear your opinion, but we really want to see the data. And I think when they saw the data and they saw how much contact was occurring and then they saw what the benefit was of the cap, then they said, look, this is, no pun intended, kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it's something that we feel like we need to do to, to do all we can to make our guys as safe as possible. Dr. Alan Sills, NFL chief medical officer, four years ago was involved in helping to change the game. You stepped in front of NFL head coaches and GMs, and you said rules must change. Players cannot lower their heads when initiating and making contact. The quote is, it is a foul if a player lowers his head to initiate and make contact with his helmet against an opponent. The coaches and the GMs overwhelmingly backed you, and the numbers are better. Get this. 2015, 275 concussions. 2016, 243 concussions. 2017, 281 concussions. That's an average of 266 per year. Last year, just 187 concussions. Statistically, the change has worked. Has it worked as well as you had hoped? I think it has worked, Mike, and, and again, a lot of work went into that, not just from our side, but you mentioned the coaches and the players who are the ones that have had to make these changes, and, and I think it's been a combination of things. I think it has certainly been the rule change around the lowering ahead. It's also been a rule change on kickoffs. If you remember, we changed the kickoff rule and the formations and the rules on blocking on kickoffs, no more wedges and that type of thing. We changed the blindside block rule, and that was no longer allowed. Helmet technology has gotten better, and players have embraced that. You know, as we put a poster out every year ranking the helmets on how they do in those lab tests that we spoke about earlier. Now every single NFL player is wearing one of those top-performing helmets, which adds safety. And I think there's also just been continued awareness, again, around getting the head out of the game and how we use it. So all that has added together, you know, that number last year, Mike, that was an all-time low even though we played a 17th game. That's right. If you remember, we had an extra game. So the rate has really gone down. We're not finished. By no means do we say the work's done. And as we talked about just a moment ago, I want to move the conversation away from just concussions and talk about all helmet impacts and, and what we can do to drive those down because I think there's a lot we can do there. And, 
you know, Mike, this goes back to something the commissioner says, and, and this is something that's kind of a, a guiding principle for us. We believe the game can be both safer and more exciting. We do not think those are mutually exclusive. And I think if you looked at our game last year and you thought about the playoffs, for example, minus a few difficult moments, let's just say, for our home team here, but overall, overall, the, the quality of play, Mike, the excitement, I mean, it's higher than it's ever been at a time when the numbers were supporting you know, fewer injuries. So I do believe we can be safer and more exciting at the same time. You shared with us four years ago that when you got up to lay this out for the football people, as it were, that you had no idea how it would be received and that it was overwhelmingly positive. Coach Belichick, even in that room, stood up for you. As you review it now, with four years in the rearview mirror, are you still a little surprised that the football people bought in the way that they did and as quickly as they did? Well, I think, Mike, all coaches want their teams to be healthy because you know what? Healthy teams win, <laughs> which it turns out. The more available your players are, sure. it's an advantage. And so coaches are always looking for every advantage they can, whether it's scheme or design or scouting, and health is one of those. So every coach wants to be healthy. I think when we've brought them the data and they've seen it, they've adapted and they've changed immediately. They really have. And I'll give you another example that happened this year. One of our other focal points are soft tissue injuries hamstring strains, quad strains, groin strains. That turns out to be the number one time loss injury in the NFL. Players miss more games and practices due to those injuries than anything, concussion, ACL, anything. A lot of people are surprised by that. They don't realize that's our biggest challenge. So we've really dug into that and looked and said, okay, what's driving that? Similar to what we did with concussions. How can we reduce it? One of the things we've zeroed in on are, is, again, the start of training camp, that first 14 days, what we do, how we do, duration of practice, intensity. And we went to the coaches this year. Again, we met with all of them one-on-one. -on -one. We shared the data. We showed them what our findings were and how we thought they could modify and sort of ramp up, gradually increase these factors, even as they add contact. And again, to a person, there was no pushback on that. No one said, I don't believe that, or I don't think that's the way to do it, or by God, this is football. You know, they want to be healthy. They want to be safe. And I think when we bring data, they've been very curious. They've been very engaged. They've given great feedback, and it really is a dialogue. It's not just me or us standing there saying, thou shalt do this. You know, that's not a productive way to do things. It's us saying, hey, here's what the data shows. This is how we think it could be implemented. What do you guys think? Can you do? And, and they'll take that and say, yeah, we, we can change X, Y, and Z, or maybe if you thought about this. And so it's, it's been a very productive working relationship. Dr. Sells, you hoped four years ago that these changes in the NFL – would carry over to high school and college in terms of how the game was taught. Have you seen as much of that as you hoped over the past four seasons? I think we have. I mean, I think you just start out, Mike, with, with people's perception. And, and if you think back, you know, you're not as old as me, but you probably remember there used to be a show that showed all the big hits of the week, mm -hmm. and it was a thumping rock music, and everybody like, yeah, what a great hit. Now when I give talks, whether it's to medical people or coaches or to a lay audience, if I show a hit like that, everybody sort of turns away. You know, they don't want to see that kind of hit because they think that's a, an injury-causing hit. So I think there's a, a shift in what we view as the game versus dangerous behavior. And that's part of this whole effort of just recognizing we can play the game and we can have excitement and we can have great plays and fan involvement without having those dangerous parts of the game. So I think that has changed at all levels. Certainly we've spent a lot of time sharing what we're doing with helmets, sharing what we did with kickoff. You've seen rules changes in, in college and in, in, in high school 
but we're trying to really aggressively share all that we're doing. We mentioned a minute ago the soft tissue initiative, certainly Guardian Caps. We'll be talking about all that and sharing our data because we want, Mike, this to influence other levels to make them safer as well. This isn't just about NFL safety to me. It's about sports safety in general. The kickoff play has been changed. Are you continuing to study the punt play and possible changes? Yes. Right now, the punt play is the most dangerous play on the field in terms of the injury rate. Not a big surprise because there are two elements that always put you at risk for injury, and that's space and speed. So when you have big people running very fast over long distances, there's the potential for injury. So, you know, we're really trying to look at that play. It's a complex play, Mike, because it turns out at first it's an offensive play. And what I mean by that is the, the receiving team has to defend against a fake punt. So it's not an automatic that there's going to be a kick, which is very different than the kickoff. You could say, well, there might be an onside kick, but it's still a kick sure. play. So you have to start with an offensive play that then rapidly transitions to a special teams play over a long distance. And so there are a lot of elements that we're looking at. Again, we've studied it in detail. We worked with the USFL this spring about some potential modifications. If folks follow that league, they saw some changes that that came out of some of our data and suggestions and conversations with them. So we'll be really interested to see what the effect was. But I think the punt play is something we know that we're, we're going to need to continue to address. And, and we're trying to do that thoughtfully. Again, a lot of dialogue with special teams coaches, getting their input and what they see and, and how we might move this forward. Safety-wise, will we notice any rule changes in the NFL game in 2022? Yeah, there weren't a whole lot of brand new rules. I think the continued emphasis on the use of helmet rule and how we interpret that and, and, and call it will be something that I think you see. But outside of that, there weren't any major rule changes that were passed in this iteration of the owners' meetings. I do have two COVID questions. Okay. With two years of COVID behind you and having had a chance to review all of that, what turned out to be the biggest challenge to the league in dealing with COVID? I think just that from a medical standpoint, we, we lacked answers. You know, it was such a novel disease without a track record that we couldn't fall back on 5, 10, 20 years of experience to say, well, if we do A, then B will result. And, you know, I think, Mike, we were at the tip of the spear in terms of knowledge. I mean, if you look back, the NFL was doing more testing and more tracing and, and had more data than anyone did. But we turned to the experts, and often they said, we don't know, you know, where this is going to go. And so didn't the CDC, weren't they interested in examining the NFL's data? Well, not only did they examine it, Mike, we actually published with them. We published a couple of times with them what our results said. And we did. We had very regular conversations with the CDC, the FDA, the White House Task Force, because the NFL data was absolutely invaluable to them. If you think about it, it was 32 different communities that had all the same protocol with testing and tracing. It was an incredible source of data to understand how the pandemic was changing, how the different variants were impacting us, vaccinations, all of that. So that was a, I think, Mike, one of the NFL's greatest contributions and something fans may not realize is literally the NFL's data helped shape public policy. And by the way, not only in the U.S., but we got invited to meet with several other foreign governments as well who basically said, tell us what you're finding in the NFL because we've got to make public health policy in our country. So it was a really neat moment for us to think that the NFL was helping to impact all of that around the world. Out of every negative comes a positive. So after two years of COVID, what have you learned that will improve the game and improve the care of the players and the staff going forward that you think will be permanent? Well, I think one of the changes is just the closeness of the relationship. I mean, we've always worked with our clubs, but during COVID, <laughs> 
I mean, it was a weekly occurrence for me to talk one-on-one with head coaches or general managers or team owners or presidents. And, and, and I think those relationships have and will continue because we understand each other's concerns. And kind of going back to what we were talking about, about non-COVID issues, you know, now when we go to, to talk about soft tissue injuries or head contact, you know, there's a relationship and a foundation there. So I, I think that's a, a positive takeaway that we'll have. I think also just a better understanding of, of infectious disease overall. I mean, people think back to, you know, the Michael Jordan flu game and things like that. There, you know, there have been episodes of, of illness in the past and how those can impact a team and what measures to be taken. And so whether we're talking about COVID or influenza or staph infections, I think everyone now realizes, wow, infectious disease can be a real thing, can really affect our team. But if we get in front of it and we report it and, and we work together, we can mitigate the impact on our team. So we talk a lot in the league, and you know in football in general, it's about teamwork and resiliency and, and sacrificing for the good of the group. That was never more apparent than it was in COVID. There would have been no way to get through two seasons without missing any games if we didn't have everyone in the league really pulling together. I want to end with two questions that I asked you when we sat down four years ago. Same two questions. What keeps you up at night in your job? (laughs) Other than the phone ringing most of the time, I would say it's always making sure that we are looking forward and anticipating what's coming down the road and that we are doing all that we can to, to maximize safety wherever we may be. And our goal is to make sure, Mike, whether we're playing a game in London or Munich like we will be this year or Mexico City or the Super Bowl, that we have the same level of care and the same level of of preparedness for that. And so I think as we enter this season, we all still have a little bit of uncertainty about COVID and where we're going to be. And so that'll that'll be something we'll have to keep a very close eye on. But it's just making sure I, I want us to be the best in the world at, at taking care of our athletes, our coaches and our staff. And, and I want to make sure that we are as passionate and as detailed about that as we can be at all times. You have to be proud that the game of football is safer than it's ever been. My last question is, to keep moving in that direction, to make it even safer, what do you think needs to continue to happen? I think first is an acknowledgement that there's no finish line to health and safety. I think we can always make things better. And I think that is a a mindset. You know, in the past, there might have been a mindset among some that said, hey, injuries are part of the game. They're going to happen. It just is. And I don't accept that. I think that we can and should continue to study and drive down those injuries. I think we will Yes, players are bigger, faster, and stronger, but on the flip side, we know so much more now today than we ever have about physiology and training and nutrition and rest and recovery. So I think we just have to be committed relentlessly to this idea that we can make the game safer. We've got tremendous resources of data available to us. You know, when we talk about all the data we have, whether it's injury data or GPS tracking data that every player wears a chip on the field, all the video we have, Let's take all that and apply it to continue to make the game safer. And let's never accept that we've done as all we can. Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. For Dr. Sills, I'm Mike Keith, thanking you for joining us for the OTP. Welcome to-